This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Social Security Administration came out last or nearly last in nearly every measure in the recent Pulse survey that came out from the Office of Management and Budget. Its union employees say that's because management has not been bargaining in good faith on a new contract, and the issue has been dragging on for years. For one view, we turn to the president of AFGE Council 220, Ralph DeJulius. Mr. DeJulius, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. Before we get to the survey, I just wanted to get an update on collective bargaining, because this has been going for years, if I'm correct, trying to establish a new contract between AFGE and Social Security. Where do things stand now? We have a contract that was done in the Trump administration with a gun put to our head that they would implement the president's executive orders unless we agreed to their proposals. And their proposals took away a lot of employee rights, took away a lot of union rights. The thing that employees are most upset about was losing the vision program that assisted in paying for glasses and also losing telework because the contract let management take telework away willy-nilly, and the union and employees had no rights to protest it. Right. So now that administration is gone and Andrew Saul is gone. And what's the status at this point with the new acting commissioner now a year in? Acting Commissioner Kijikazi and the Biden administration have promised a new era in labor relations. We have not seen that. Acting Commissioner Kijikazi has left in place all of the Trump appointees. And when, uh, for instance, they told us that they were going to be ending work at home by quarantine and we would go back to the 2019 contract, which lets them do whatever they want, whenever they want, to whoever they want on telework. And they don't want to change anything. We have repeatedly asked the agency to follow Biden Executive Order 14003 and bargain over permissive subjects. They don't. We've asked them to reopen the contract and completely and get rid of the Trump contract. And they came up with 50 pages of sophistry to explain why they don't have to. So we are not seeing the Biden administration's good intentions being implemented in Acting Commissioner Kijikazi. Interesting. So it's against this backdrop that the Pulse survey arrives, and your bargaining unit, Council 220, is about how many members? Council 220 represents approximately 27,000 SSA employees from St. Thomas to Pago Pago. Got it. So it's a good percentage of the employees, and SSA, for whatever reason, had the highest participation rate in the Pulse survey, I think, of any agency, correct? That is correct. So with respect to the questions that were asked in the Pulse survey, I feel management supports me. I feel I have someone to talk to. This is a place where I belong. All of these questions. From my reading of the results, SSA wasn't horrible, but it was still pretty much below the average on every question. And what do you attribute that to? Employees are really unhappy with how they're being treated uh, when they're working at home. For instance, when you were in the office and you were interviewing, you could get up, get a photocopy, you come back. So you weren't chained to anything because you could walk around with your headset and you could still handle the people on the phone. Right now that we're at home, 
we can't print at home. So management is constantly looking to see why people aren't answering the phone, what they're doing. They're looking when employees put a member of the public on hold to go to a different computer screen to ask someone a question. It's that level of micromanagement that is driving employees crazy. Employees will be on the phone from nine o'clock until about four o'clock when the queue ends. And then management is constantly sending instant messages or emails during the day. Uh, Where are you? You need to answer more phone calls. Don't forget, you have to get this case done. The employees are doing more work per the agency's own statistics on telework than they ever did before in terms of answering phone calls. Before telework, we would lose 25 to 30 percent of our phone calls. People just got tired of waiting. Now we have a much, much higher answer rate. Before, if you or a family member needed to call for an appointment, a good part of the time we would tell you, we just have to take your name and number. We can't give you an appointment. Our appointment calendar is only out 60 days and there are no appointments available. Now for just about any sort of case, we can give you an appointment within 72 hours. And if we can't, it's not because there's not an employee who can't do it. It's because management hasn't put that kind of interview on the appointment calendar. We're speaking with Ralph DeJulius, president of AFGE Council 220. So it sounds like you're saying the public is being served better than it was before telework. And yet it's worse for employees because of this kind of hyper elevated work level. Correct. I don't know if you're familiar with the GAO study about missing mail. Management's only job when we went to telework was to come to the office, do time and attendance for employees, cover people who might have called in sick, and to do the mail. The mail wasn't being done because managers weren't doing it. If you can imagine having a mailroom run by people who make between 90000 and $130,000 a year. That's the situation in Social Security. Acting Commissioner Kijikazi has not addressed those structural problems that the agency is still doing things the old way and management's doing the mail because they don't trust employees. That really, really trickles down and results in the bad survey results Uh, You get because management can keep saying that employees are their greatest assets, but they don't treat employees valuable. They don't treat them with respect. And what is the agency telling you with respect to returning to the office and also for the generalized reopening of the field offices for Social Security? What they're telling us now is we've gone to what's called tier three of work at home by quarantine during the pandemic. Tier three means that most offices will be calling in. We thought it was 25% of the employees on a rotating basis. Well, we've had so much attrition that management basically decided to call back in enough people to fill 25% of the desks. And now we're hearing that those people, instead of doing dire need interviews in the office, are being answered to call appointments on the phone and to answer the general inquiry line, which is what we would call portable work because it's the kind of work we could do at home. So again, it's for us a matter of management 
not managing properly, the most effectively taking advantage of the employees and not bargaining with the union. We settled uh, a ULP that they sent us home and they did bargain. We have the workplace safety protocols. We settled the ULP because management, that's an unfair labor practice. Management refused to bargain. That's an unfair labor practice. It was settled by management saying, all right, all right, we'll go to the bargaining table. Yeah, all those things are at impasse now. They basically came in and said, take a long walk off a short pier. It's our way or the highway. That was exactly what we got during the Trump administration. That has not changed under President Biden and his acting appointment as commissioner. All right. So there's a lot of parallel issues here. Then there is the confusion over returning and how that would look like. And then there's the contract itself, which is in place from the old administration. But let me ask you this. You said that the public is having shorter waits for telephone, shorter waits for appointments. I presume these are tele-appointments with a Social Security agent. So if you were to return back to the office and everything went back to, say, pre-2019, would the service levels go back down to where people couldn't get appointments for two months? We don't see the agency's plan to change that, and we have constantly been after that to change that. We wanted telework to be a success because the employees love it. There are certain issues, especially when fraud is involved, where we actually have to see someone face-to-face. But otherwise, most things can be done over the phone. Now, SSA, I was negotiator with the union on the vulnerable population liaison. That's because they looked at the disability uh, applications and found that disability applications were down. And they said, oh, it's because the offices aren't open and we can't deal. We're not dealing with the vulnerable populations. When I started with SSA in 1978, we had a position called a field representative. It was their job to go out into the community and take care of vulnerable populations, especially individuals with mobility impairments who couldn't really deal with technology. Well, SSA has eliminated those positions. When I started in 1978, and I hate to date myself, we had what were called contact stations. Those were places where Social Security would go out into the community to a library, to City Hall, to DHS once or twice a month or even a week so people could come in to us. Those were also all closed. They don't have any idea what to do to make services more accessible except to beat the employees and say, work harder, work harder. All right. So then the basic situation with telework is the employees would like it because of the productivity and the service to the public. If only the agency would stop making you crazy over it. Yes. If I if I can summarize that correctly. That is correct. I've had people who basically are telling me they're looking for jobs in other agencies. They came to Social Security because we could interview in public and they came from call centers where it was like a land office business, just ratchet them up. Yes, like selling gold futures on the phone. Yes. Ralph DeJulius is president of AFGE Council 220, again, representing employees of the Social Security Administration who work in field offices and who deal with the public. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. 
We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with the washington post um 
uh, interview and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 